Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, please. I hope that you remember that the book of Acts is the first 60 years of the church's existence put to inscripturated paper. The story of the first 60 years of the church, born in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given from heaven to indwell the believers of the baby church, the baby church that grew out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and then ultimately into the uttermost parts of the earth, a, a church that didn't crawl and then barely walk long before it ran under the blessing of God's uh, gospel under the blessing of answered prayer, under the blessing of authenticating miracles called signs and wonders, which the apostles did, that the baby infant church of Jerusalem spread fast to the uttermost parts of the earth, and it wasn't a long and drawn out process. In fact, by the action of Acts chapter 15 that we'll look at together this morning, the church had moved out from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and were in the uttermost parts of the earth in places like Pisidian Antioch. But then something came up in the life of the church, less than 60-year-old church, a doctrinal debate came up. And the debate was some groups within the church, some Jewish believers in Jesus Christ who made up the church, started to contend and say that a Gentile couldn't believe in Christ and genuinely be saved and, or genuinely become part of the church, except that Gentile obeyed the Mosaic law. These Judaizers said that unless a Gentile convert to Christ kept Jewish law, including for the males to be circumcised, then they weren't really saved. That was a major departure from the gospel. That was a major confusion in the baby church. So much so that delegates were called back from the uttermost parts of the earth where they were ministering the gospel, and some of them were sent to Jerusalem. And a council was formed in Jerusalem to rule on this thought that you weren't really saved as a Gentile unless you kept the Jewish law, that you weren't really saved as a Jewish believer unless you kept the Jewish law. It had to be sorted out. So delegates convened in Jerusalem, the leader of the church in Jerusalem was James, and they met and testimony was given in the council as to what the gospel is and what it isn't, and the way of salvation and the way that isn't the way of salvation, and a decision had to be made. And so it worked this way, that there started with a debate, and then it moved to a decision, but then it moved to duties, and that's how it works in the Christian life, not just at the Jerusalem Council in the first century AD. When you come to a passage of scripture, whether it's in a morning worship service or in the privacy of your own study, maybe there's some debate between you and others about what the Bible means, or even with a debate within yourself. What does the Bible mean? It starts with debate, but then you have to be brought to decision based on what you understand the scriptures to plainly teach, you must arrive at a decision. You don't stay at the debate stage forever. But when you come to a decision based in scripture, that's called a conviction. I would die for my convictions, but I wouldn't cross the street for my opinions. Burger King and McDonald's, I wouldn't necessarily cross the street for one or the other. 
But if you put a gun to my head and said, denounce Jesus Christ as being God, I would say, pull the trigger. Debate, decision, conviction, duty. Properly seen, every question needs to find an answer in the word of God, an answer that you build upon in your living every day. And so it was at the Jerusalem Council. There was this debate about what the gospel was. Did it include the Mosaic law or didn't it? Does sanctification include the Mosaic law or doesn't it? Does a Gentile have to obey the Jewish law to be a Christian or doesn't he or she have to? And so there was a debate. The Jerusalem Council was convened in, in James, under James' leadership. And a decision was made. And they made the right decision. They heard testimony to what God was doing in the uttermost parts of the earth, in Gentile country, how God was giving the Holy Spirit to believing Gentiles in Jesus Christ. He was doing signs and wonders. Tongues were being spoken in the remotest parts of Gentile country, just like tongues had been spoken in Jewish country when Jews came to saving faith in Christ. And these testimonies came into the Jewish council in Jerusalem. And the council made an absolutely correct decision. And this was their decision. They decided that believing Gentiles did not have to keep Jewish law, including male circumcision, in order to become Christians. That was the right decision. But they didn't stop with decision. They moved from decision, conviction, to life application. They said, okay, Gentiles don't have to abide by Mosaic law to become Christians and part of the church, but they have some duties. They have some things they're obliged to do. And so it is. Proper debate and questioning of the text brings us to proper understanding of the scriptures, which are convictions. But convictions must issue forth into practical, uh, pedal to the metal, rubber to the road, living. Put another way, beliefs must always affect behaviors. Young people leave churches often because they don't see a connection between what the believers in the church say they believe and how the believers in the church behave. It's called being a hypocrite. And young people see through hypocrisy. So we need to remember that if we have questions about what the Bible states, what it teaches, that's fine. Those debates can be within ourselves or with other believers. But don't stop with debate. Move to decision. Study the word long enough to get a position based on scripture, a decision, a conviction. Put the gun to my head, tell me to denounce Jesus Christ. I say pull the trigger. That's a decision, a conviction. But don't stop with just decision or conviction. The Jerusalem council didn't stop there. They moved forward to duties. They told the Gentile believers who formed part of the church of Christ what, how they ought to live. Yeah, you don't have to keep the Mosaic law to be saved, to be part of the church, or to be sanctified, but there are some obligations you have to live out. What were they? They said, the council said, that believing Gentiles were to keep the peace with believing Jews. How were they to keep the peace with believing Jews in the same church? They were to abstain from any freedoms which were abhorrent to the Jews. 
Believing Gentiles in the one church that also had believing Jews were not to break the peace with the believing Jews by exercising freedoms they may have had in Christ that would be abhorrent to Jewish believers. Look at verses 19 to 22 of Acts 15. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues Every Sabbath, verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also named Barsabbas, and Silas, the leading men among the brethren. So the decision made at the council was again, to state it again, that believing Gentiles did not have to keep Jewish law, including male circumcision, in order to become Christians, in order to become part of the baby church. That was the decision. But then some duties issued forth from that decision. And the duties were that believing Gentiles in the church that comprised of both believing Gentiles and believing Jews, that believing Gentiles were to keep peace with believing Jews in the church by abstaining from certain freedoms which were abhorrent, revolting to Jews, like they were to avoid foods or anything else which had once been offered to idols. They were to marry persons who by Old Testament law were too nearly related. They were not to marry, let me say it again, they were not to marry persons who were too nearly related to them according to Old Testament Jewish law. They were not to eat non-kosher meats. And they were not to eat blood. So there was a debate about, do you have to keep the, the law of Moses to be a Christian and be part of the church? came to a decision based on what was going on in Gentile country, that Gentiles were seeing the same spiritual blessings from salvation that Jewish converts were seeing. And the the decision, the conviction of the council was, no, you don't have to keep the Jewish law to be a Christian or part of the church. But if you're a Gentile convert within the church, don't rile the feathers and break peace with the Jewish believers in your church, the same church, the one church. Avoid They were to abstain from freedoms which were abhorrent to Jews by avoiding foods or anything else which had been once offered to idols, by not marrying persons who by Old Testament law were too nearly related to them, by not eating non-kosher meats and by not eating blood. 23 to 29. So this is the council, they, the council wrote this letter by them. This is the decision of the council as a letter that was to circulate among the church, local churches in the Mediterranean basin. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Now here's the letter. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, 
unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such command, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord, that's at the council, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. May I interject the Greek word used there for sexual immorality implies marrying too closely related a person according to Jewish law. You abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now, it's interesting that the letter generated by the Jerusalem council sent to the Gentile churches is deemed to be scripture. It wasn't just the opinions of James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, or even the other elders and apostles who were forming uh, that council. It was the opinion of the Holy Spirit. It was God's opinion. I know so because it's in the Bible. The letter that went to the churches in the Gentile territories is in the Bible verbatim. It's scripture. It's God's truth. It's not human opinion. Now, there are two words I want to point out to us in the letter that was sent to the churches. I want you to focus with me in verse 20, or excuse me, verse 19, the word trouble. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among you, the Gentiles, who are turning to God. And then I want you to turn your eye to verse 24. Since we have heard that some who went out from us, that's the Judaizers, some who went out from us have troubled, same word, in the English, but not the Greek, troubled you with words unsettling your souls. Trouble in verse 19 and troubled in verse 24 are the same word in English, but in the Greek, they're two different words. Two different Greek words. The word in verse 19, which is translated trouble, is the idea of an annoyance. Throwing something in the path of someone to annoy them. That's the word for trouble in verse 19. Different word in verse 24. In verse 24, talking of the Judaizers, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled, different word, you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, that Greek word doesn't talk about an annoyance, something thrown in a person's road to annoy them, that Greek word is stronger and more serious. That Greek word is not talking about annoyance. It's talking about disturbance. Something that, in fact, that is so disturbing that unsettles a person. Ever had an unsettled spirit? The Judaizers were unsettling the spirits of truly saved Gentiles. This word translated troubled in verse 24 is something that unsettles a person, something that deeply upsets a person, something that perplexes a person, something that even scares a person. Maybe you could look at it this way. An annoyance 
is that police are stopping cars on Bay Street to check windshield inspection stickers. A disturbance is the police stopping your car and arresting you when you're not guilty of any crime. There's a difference between an annoyance and a disturbance. And when it came to proper belief about Jesus Christ, proper belief about salvation, proper belief about the church and who comprises the church, when it came to proper belief, otherwise we call that sound doctrine, when it came to sound doctrine back in the first century when the church was less than 60 years old, back then Gentile converts were essentially being asked, what about Jewish laws? That was an annoyance. Therefore, 19, therefore, I judge that we should not trouble, annoy those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. But in that context, it didn't stop with annoyance. Some fanatics, Judaizers, persons who wanted the church to look entirely Jewish, persons who believed you have to be keepers of the Jewish law in its entirety to be actually a Christian, People who believed the males had to be circumcised to actually be born again. People who believed you couldn't be growing as a Christian in the church except you're keeping all of the Mosaic laws. They weren't an annoyance. They were a disturbance to people in the first church. Annoyance moved to disturbance for Gentile converts to Christ. Verse 24 since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, disturbed you with words, unsettled you with words, deeply upset you with words, perplexed you with words, scared you with words, unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord. So watch this. Annoyance. What about Jewish laws? Move to a, a, a false commandment. A human, not a divine commandment. You must be circumcised and you must keep the law to be saved a false and erroneous commandment of men, not of God. That would have been unsettling to you as a Gentile. You hear the gospel, Jesus Christ has died for your sins and risen from the dead, as a gospel of grace, that Jesus Christ has kept and fulfilled the law, and so by looking to him in repentance and faith, you could be born again into God's family called the church, then to be told by certain members of that church, no, you have to keep the Jewish law in its entirety to even be a Christian if you're a Gentile. And to be a Gentile in good standing within the church, you have to keep the Jewish law. That would have unsettled you. That was contrary to the gospel you believed. That would have perplexed you. That would have scared you as a Gentile believer in the early church. I mean, think about it. It would have scared you, would it not, to think that you had to obey all the Old Testament law to be a Christian, that you had to obey all the Old Testament law to be accepted in the church, and that you had to appear to be obeying all the Old Testament law for the judges in the church called the Judaizers to even think your salvation was real. 
That would have been scary. That would have been far worse than an annoyance. <laughs> that would have been a disturbance that your spirit would have been unsettled, mixed up, worried, discouraged, disheartened. You know, <laughs> I never want to be an annoyance to another Christian. And I don't think you do either. And I certainly don't want to ever be a disturbance to a brother or a sister in Christ. And I don't think any of you want to be a disturbance to a brother or sister in Christ either. So the question becomes, and this is where we'll unpack the rest of the text for, for this sermon. The question becomes, how do we not become an annoyance or a disturbance to an, a brother or a sister in Christ? How do we not become an annoyance or a disturbance to a brother or a sister in Christ? Well, first, we get our doctrine straight. We get our beliefs right. That salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, through faith alone. And that experiential sanctification is a process, not an event. And once we're saved by God's grace, God's grace keeps us safely saved. We get our doctrine right. That's the first thing. The second way not to be an annoyance or a disturbance to other believers is we must live out the fact that all Bible doctrine is to impact all Christian duty. We have to come to grips with the fact that whatever we believe has to affect how we behave. And if what we believe doesn't affect how we behave and we're hypocrites, people of all ages will leave the church. Hypocrisy is particularly unattractive. How not to be an annoyance or a disturbance to brothers or sisters in the Lord, number one, get our doctrine right. Number two, live out of the fact that all Bible doctrine impacts all Christian duty, that proper belief must issue forth in proper behavior. Number three, we must solve any church problems with Scripture and not with the flesh. When we have problems in our church, which happen from time to time, we must solve those problems not with our opinions, not with our traditions, not with our smarts, our education, but with Scripture. Warren Wearsby puts it very well. He says, church problems are not solved by passing resolutions, but by practicing the revelations God gives to us from his word. That's right. Don't want to be an annoyance? Don't want to be a disturbance to other believers? Then solve any problems in our church with Scripture. Number four, if we would not be an annoyance or not be a disturbance to another Christian, we must not use our liberty in Christ to knowingly offend more immature believers who don't yet have liberty in certain matters. For the good of other believers, we choose not to exercise our liberties in certain gray matters. Romans chapter 14 and 15 deal with that. I'll give you an example. It's maybe a silly example. I have liberty in Christ to mow my lawn on Sundays. But I don't. Never mow my lawn on Sundays. Because there's some people who would be offended by that, that a pastor of a church would do yard work on Sundays. I have liberty in Christ to do that, but I never do it. That's how I'm not being an annoyance or a disturbance to other Christians. We make loving concessions in order to keep the peace within the family of God. 
We don't insist on always winning arguments. We love the doctrinally confused or untaught brother or sister in the Lord. We love them into the proper understandings of God's word. Let's go on. We're not an annoyance nor a disturbance to other Christians. If that's the case, we must work to arrive at the place of a loving unity in matters under debate. We must agree to disagree in love at times. How are you not an annoyance or a disturbance to other Christians? You must never compromise the truth of the gospel. But in certain other gray areas, areas that the scriptures don't directly address, that's a gray area, we should welcome loving compromise for the sake of the church's testimony and its unity. You do realize that churches have split in two parts over the color of the carpet. It's true. When the deacons announced in certain churches we're changing the carpet, half the church wants it blue and the other half wants it gray, that becomes the blue church and the gray church, literally. How does that look to the watching world? <laughs> what happened over there? Well, they fought over the carpet color. And now there's two churches. What does the average person without Christ think about that? Those people are crazy. Even at our office, we could figure out what color carpet should be. So there are certain gray areas, pardon the pun when I use gray carpet in the illustration. There are certain gray areas where the scriptures don't directly address, like the color of the sanctuary carpet, for example, that we should welcome loving compromise for the sake of the church's testimony in the community and for the unity of the brothers and sisters who make up the church. You don't want to be an annoyance? Good. You don't want to be a disturbance to other Christians? Good. Then we must not insist on having our way on matters of personal opinion and not on conviction. We must major on the majors and we must minor on the minors. After the Jerusalem Council's ruling, the Church of Jesus Christ did not split into two rival churches, the Grace Church and the Law Church. Didn't happen. The ruling of the council brought the parties in debate within the church together to a doctrinal understanding and to a way of living amongst one another with compromise that honored Christ and was a good testimony outsiders. You don't want to be an annoyance. You don't want to be a disturbance. Good. Then you must learn to give and take in practical arrangements of life so that persons can live and work together in love and in harmony. You go to your first small group meeting and you want to meet on Wednesday nights. But the majority of your group want to meet on Thursday nights. But you could do Thursday nights. You need to learn to give and take with the brothers and sisters in your small group and make life arrangements together with them so that you can love and minister together as a small group. You want not to be an annoyance or disturbance? Good. You must carry out your collective Christian duties so that we always present a united witness to the lost. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 20, 21, I do not pray for these alone, that is his first disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. 
that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That's what Jesus said. You want the world to believe that the Father sent Jesus Christ to be Savior of the world? Then be one with other Christians. Live in harmony and love with each other. Don't divide yourselves over opinions, tastes, preferences. There's more. We must avoid knowingly being a stumbling block by needlessly offending other brothers and sisters in the Lord and the lost. If you're taking notes, you could write down Romans 14, 13 to 21 about not being a stumbling block. Two Christians that have differing convictions based on Scripture are not one is weak and one is strong. If both have convictions on a matter based on Scripture, they're both strong brothers or sisters. But if, a, if there's a Christian who does not yet have a conviction because they haven't studied the word adequately to know what the word says about that matter, they are a weaker brother or a sister in Christ. And the stronger brother or sister in Christ who has a biblical conviction about the matter at hand that this weaker Christian does not yet have a biblical conviction over needs to be tender toward the weaker brother and not to send a stumbling block to the weaker brother's progress in the faith. Sometimes the stronger brother or sister willingly gives up the use of a freedom they have in Christ that is offensive to the weaker brother because the weaker brother hasn't studied it out properly yet in the scriptures. And so in deference to the weaker brother's need, and in deference to preserving and conserving unity, the stronger believer doesn't just forge ahead in his or her liberty, disregarding how it affects the weaker brother or the sister, but accommodates with humility and love. He says, let's, let's look at the word together about this issue. And then when the weaker brother or sister, through Bible study and encouragement, comes to a conviction about that matter, then that is no longer a weaker brother or a sister. It's now a strong brother or a strong sister. And then maybe it's time for the first stronger brother to exercise the freedom he has always had in the matter because the weaker brother is no longer weaker. And it would no longer be a stumbling block for the, weak, the stronger brother to live out the liberty before the weaker brother. Don't want to be an annoyance, don't want to be a disturbance, neither do I. We must bring clarity and charity in debated faith matters, knowing that the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. He who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, capital S, but of the Spirit, for the letter, that is the law, kills, but the Spirit, capital S, gives life. We must constantly strive to bring clarity and charity into baited faith matters, allowing the Holy Spirit to arbitrate and to guide. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, Come to me, 
all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from what? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, Jesus said, is easy, and my burden is light. The Judaizers at the Jerusalem Council argued that the heavy yoke of the law, which could never fully be obeyed 100%, 100% of the time, should have been yoked on the Gentile converts to Christ in the church. And although Jesus said this before there was the church, he said, come to me, Gentile believers. The church doesn't exist when he said this. I'm acknowledging that. But in effect, he said, come to me, Gentile believers, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The church of Jesus Christ should be a place of spiritual rest, not spiritual driven performance. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know why Jesus has a yoke to give us? Because he fulfilled the other yoke. He's the only one that did. He fulfilled all the Old Testament law. He completed it. He fulfilled it. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Jerusalem Council came to the right, righteous ruling. You don't have to be keeping the Old Testament law to be a Christian. You don't have to be keeping the Old Testament law to get into the church. You don't have to be keeping the Old Testament law to have good standing in the church. Your salvation and your membership in the Church of Jesus Christ is by grace through the finished work and obedience of Jesus Christ and his righteousness being conferred upon you, imputed to your account as an act of grace. And then we live a thank you kind of life back to the Savior that looks righteous, it is righteous. Knowing that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We need 15 more workers in Iwana. Those 15 persons should conclude before God that that is the yoke Jesus Christ is inviting them to take with him. They're not guilted into doing it. I'm not twisting arms to get the extra 15 people. But because Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light, that you conclude with your Savior in an intimate fellowship, relationship. Yeah, Jesus wants me to serve the children. He wants to serve the children through me on Tuesday nights. And then you'll be running up to the clipboards to sign up versus being. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't want to be an annoyance? Don't want to be a disturbance to other Christians? Good. You must understand that church problems and differences are opportunities for growth just as much as they could be temptations to dissension and division. When we have a church problem, 
and differences amongst us, it can be an opportunity for all parties involved to grow spiritually and understand God's word better and be more like Christ. Differences of opinion in the church don't have to necessarily lead to further division and dissension. I told you before, when Beth and I had pre-marriage counseling 41 years ago, we had an inventory done on each. We took separate to each other, and we went to the counseling pastor, showed him our inventories, and he said, well, you two are the two most opposite people I've ever given this test to. And I was concerned, very concerned. He said, but look, he said, in the flesh, you guys are so different that it'll be just like this for your marriage. But you're both believers that the Spirit of God lives in. If you let the Spirit of God control each of you, then it won't be sparks. It'll be teamwork. And that's what it's been for 40 years. Her differences, her strengths fill in my weaknesses. My strengths fill in her weaknesses. So disagreements in a marriage, disagreements in a church, don't have to mean divisions and factions and arguments unsettled. It can be opportunities for growth to go deeper into God's word, to better be more like Jesus Christ, to, just, just, uh, to evidence the fruit of the spirit, and to have peace. You don't want to be an annoyance or a disturbance? Good, then we must value working together, taking time to listen to each other, loving each other, and learning from each other. When I'm talking... I am learning nothing. I went into a store last night to get a pizza. And this drunk fella decided he would tell me everything the Bible taught in one breath. Why he decided to tell me what the Bible taught, I have no idea. I didn't announce who I was. I just was there to get a pizza. And I started pushing back against his error. And he just pushed back on me harder. And I said, you know, sir, I've learned that when I'm talking, I'm not learning anything. And when you're talking, you're not learning anything either. So if you don't mind, I'll just wait for my pizza to be ready. Before I got my pizza, he said, I apologize, apologize, apologize. I said, I accept your apology. When we are talking, we're not learning anything. But when we're listening, we have the option to learn. So you don't want to be an annoyance. You don't want to be a disturbance to other Christians. Then work together with them. Take time to listen to them. Love them and learn from them what God wants you to learn from them. You don't want to be an annoyance or disturbance. Then know that the unity that talks about in Scripture is not uniformity. Unity is based on love, not law. And there is a great need in this church and the church for a diversity in unity. Ephesians 4, 1 to 17, diversity in unity. Because such diversity in unity is the only way the body and bride of Christ can mature and do its work in the world. We can have unity without having uniformity. We must have unity even if we don't have uniformity. We can agree to disagree in love in some things, and we must. 
You don't want to be an annoyance, and I don't want to be an annoyance. You don't want to be a disturbance, and I don't want to be a disturbance. Then last, we must give ourselves a regular dose of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8a. We need a regular dose. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I need to pour that off the pages of Scripture, as it were, onto a tablespoon and take a dose of that twice a day. Otherwise, I could become an annoyance to other Christians. Otherwise, I could become a disturbance to other Christians. Debate. How should we understand the Bible on a certain topic? Let's come to a decision, not based on our opinion, but based on our understanding of the plain teachings of Scripture. Let's come to a decision, which is a conviction. I die for my convictions. I wouldn't cross my street for my opinions. But after you've got a conviction, you've got to move from the decision and conviction to putting it into practice. And part of how we're to put this into practice is how the first church, the Gentile and Jew-composed first church, were to live with unity and love, not offending each other for the sake of offending each other to win an argument, mindful of how the outside world looks upon us as we split as a church over gray or blue carpet. God help us to move from debate to decision and conviction, but then from decision and conviction to living out that decision and conviction with love. Love for each other, love for the lost. 40 years from now, it won't matter what color the carpet was in the church that split over it. Lord, your book is so practical and so convicting. We thank you that when grace was on trial at the Jerusalem Council, that the truth won out and that the church went forward based upon your marvelous grace your unmerited favor given to each of us who believe in Christ. Thank you that we stand on the shoulders of the apostles who made the right decision at that council in Jerusalem, that we are a church with a message of grace, with a lifestyle of grace, and with a climate of grace in how we do life together as brothers and sisters in our church. God of grace, make us gracious. We pray in your name, amen.